Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this fine and beautiful June day in the nation's capital, where a recent slate of battleground polls showed support for this show surging across the country. I'm Alex Rorty, a political correspondent for McClatchy, coming to you as always in these pandemic times from my humble dwellings in Washington, D.C. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Francesca Chambers, a White House correspondent for McClatchy, who, at this point, I think qualifies as a regular on the show. Francesca, welcome. And I even have a cup to prove it. <laughs> for those of you listening, Francesca just held up a Beyond the Bubble I mug. Did. You should be watching so that you can see the Beyond the Bubble mug. But yes, uh, thank you, as always, for having me. The Beyond the Bubble mug available for $19.99 <laughs> at the Beyond the Bubble store. And of course, today, folks, it's a special episode because we are bringing on not one, but two White House correspondents. Please welcome back to the show, Michael Wilner, who covers the Trump administration for McClanchy and has been on the show twice before, but never with me as a host. Michael, welcome. I hope there are no hard feelings. Well, I'll put my hard feelings aside, Alex. It's I'm very, big very much looking forward to the show. Is there actually a Beyond the Bubble shop? Not yet. <laughs> okay. but, uh, You're working tuned. on it. But yeah, stay, stay I look tuned. forward to it. This is uh, much this is like good. a Donald Trump tweet. He's telling you about something that hasn't happened yet, but it's definitely <laughs> happening tomorrow at 2 p.m. Stay tuned. That, that, is, that is a fantastic segue. Because coming up, we're going to ask whether Democrats should seriously consider spending big money in what were once considered second-tier presidential battlegrounds like Iowa and Ohio. Some party leaders are urging the Biden campaign and allies to do just that. But so far, many groups say they are focused on just the six core battleground states. But first, I think we can say that no incumbent president seeking re-election has ever had as politically disastrous a spring as Donald Trump just did, at least not in modern American history. The latest confirmation, a new national survey from the New York Times that shows Trump trailing Joe Biden by an astounding 14-point margin, 50% to 36%. Perhaps even more daunting for the president, his polls in battleground states aren't any better. In Wisconsin, perhaps the one swing state to rule them all, Three recent surveys, three of them, have shown Biden's lead near or exceeding 10 points. It's the kind of position for Trump that few analysts scarcely imagined would have been possible when the year began. So I wanted to bring on our White House team this week because I'm going to ask them to lay out how exactly Trump could conceivably climb out of this hole. I know it's a question a lot of Republicans and Democrats alike are asking themselves right now, and no doubt it is a big task. So Francesca, you're up first. What needs to start going right for Trump? Well, first of all, the COVID spikes that we've seen in states where the president had planned to have rallies like North Carolina and Florida. So in speaking to the Trump campaign this week, they've continued to say that that he will have rallies. That is going to continue to happen. But notice, Alex, how no rallies have been put on the schedule again since that Tulsa rally that took place over the weekend in which almost 10, I think it was eight, Trump campaign staffers who were there in Tulsa tested positive for COVID. So if you're looking at that and you want to be able to have rallies, but the battleground states all have spiking cases of COVID, that's a problem. So that's how those two things are related for Donald Trump. But the way that he has chosen to handle this for anyone who watched Saturday night's rally in Tulsa, which by the way, Alex, I know that you were watching and I'm so sorry. I was texting you repeatedly during it. So excited about this week's podcast and what we could possibly discuss. Well, clearly I was having a wild and crazy Saturday night. (laughs) Wild and crazy Saturday night during the pandemic. We were texting each other about a Trump rally. You know, the way that Donald Trump has chosen to address this, though, is to clearly drill down into what he sees as his base, which applies to a lot of different states 
it, particularly these these swing states, Wisconsin, that we were talking about, and how he thinks that he can win them. And just on the face of it, if you pay attention to the message that he had that night, he talked a lot about our heritage. He talked about protesters who are pulling down statues or trying to pull down those statues. He said that some of those protesters might not even be Americans. Now, one you could look at and say, that's a one-off. But then he also called it the Kung flu. And that is something that was repeated at his event in Arizona. So he is clearly appealing to a very specific kind of supporter that he hopes to turn out in this election. Some really good pieces on this this week. I actually want to call one by uh, one of our competitors, but it was very good. David Nakamura of the Washington Post, who did something on on this uh, about what it is that that Trump is actually trying to do here. But he he, he talked about Asian Americans and and the and the terms that Donald Trump is using in these rallies. It would be very difficult to argue, at least at this point, that when that's the basis of everything that he's saying at these events, that he is not specifically targeting white working class voters in this election versus some of some of the voters, some of the other voters that we've been talking about in multiple editions of this episode. And race is a tough issue to discuss, but that is the language that he is using. Right. He, he uses sort of a, a racist provocation as a wedge issue to try to drive up some interest in his base. Look, I, you know, and, and I'm sure you share the skepticism. I'm, I'm skeptical of whether or not that can really broaden his support. Because the problem right now is, look, of course, Trump is going to hold on to his core base until the end of time. But his problem right now is some of the softer Donald Trump supporters, people maybe who voted for him um, because they really didn't like Hillary Clinton in 2016. We've seen their support for Trump drop dramatically the last few months. Let, let's, though, before we move on, Francesca, let's let's stay on the, the rally because it mm -hmm. was billed as basically the de facto start of his reelection campaign. It was hyped endlessly by both Trump himself and his campaign manager, Brad Pascal, talking about how there were a million people who were going to turn out. And the things that the major takeaways from that rally were that the attendance, according to, to local officials, was just a hair over 6,000, that he spent about 15 minutes defending the way he walked down a ramp at West Point and drank water, and that, that he slowed down testing, which was a clip that is now playing endlessly on a lot of Democratic ads. What was the sense in, within the White House and other Republicans about what went wrong and, and just how bad was, was the fallout from that? Sure. And, and I just want to follow up on something else you said before sure. about expanding the base, though. But yeah. th that does not appear to be what he is trying to do at this point. If there right, was ever right. an argument that he needed to expand it or was trying to by reaching out to minority voters, right, that was a retreat from that positioning in what we have heard in the last two major events that he has had. And he is digging in to the base. And it appears to be at this point that the way that he thinks that he can come back from where he is against Joe Biden is by turning out more of his base. And so right. that is why he's focusing on getting those people excited about this election versus what we had heard before, at least in the weeks before that, where he was super excited about maybe doing a policing bill, you know, and thought something should happen there. Yesterday, we heard him say that may not even happen at this point. And he, he wasn't pushing for it. He wasn't like, I'm calling on Congress right now to get this done. He had an opportunity to do that. He didn't. So I do think that tells you a lot about what the campaign strategy, what his strategy is moving forward here. That's as far point. as the yeah. Tulsa rally goes, the campaign has pushed all week this message that 
that's not that big of a deal. There were 12,000 people there. That's more than the fire marshal said, because the fire marshal said that there were 6,000. 12,000 is is not much better than 6,000 when there were close to a, a million people who signed up. They have said that their data isn't corrupted because they use a lot of this, you know, to gather data for who their supporters are. You know, they've been writing this off at this point as the media scared away their supporters, which I've seen some good responses to this too, which is if the people who are saying those things are on CNN and MSNBC, there's a strong question as to whether or not Trump supporters are watching those networks. And if they are, whether or not those are the people they'd be listening to over Donald Trump himself and why. And that perhaps that really also tells you something about his problem is that given the opportunity, whether you should trust the campaign about how it's safe to come out during COVID or, or the news media in this particular instance, even the Trump campaign's argument would suggest that they trusted the news media more. So, Michael, Francesca astutely makes the point that, that Trump very clearly, his response to these slipping poll numbers is to try to get his, his hardcore base to circle the wagons and to drive out turnout among those voters. What else do you see the president trying to do or what else does he need to start doing or count on happening and even, even beyond his control in, in your view? Yeah. And, and to that point, I, I think one of the fundamental questions of this election is going to be when you have a matchup between a candidate that induces great passions on both sides of the aisle, positive and negative, right, in Trump, and you have in the competing candidate one who doesn't really excite either his base or his opposition, which is better off. That is not what we had in 2016. We had two candidates that were very polarizing. And in the theme of silver linings for Trump, one of the few consistent positives in recent polling has been that people aren't really feeling the need to ride with Biden, right? And an enthusiasm matters because enthusiasm is turnout. And one of the most enthusiastic voter groups for Biden is black voters. And it's, it's going to be really interesting to see whether they come out for him more so than they did for Hillary Clinton, who's, you know, husband famously was called the first black president and who also worked in the Obama administration and also had Obama campaigning for her. But there are a lot of things that the president can do to turn this around if we're, you know, painting it in the rosiest way possible. And I think the campaign's ideal scenario is it doesn't require the president to do much, right? Because the, the closer we get to the actual election, the more pressure on Biden there's going to be for him to do more than whatever it is he's doing now, right? Obviously, the less media attention he gets, the less questioning he receives, the fewer appearances, the more of an open canvas he becomes for voters who essentially want any kind of alternative to Trump. And you inevitably see a tightening of any major race, any general election race. But there's a possibility that this tightening will be especially pronounced the more attention is paid to Biden as we progress through the race, really regardless of what either of them does. So I do think that there's a there's an assumption that that tightening is going to occur. Secondly, the, the, the president has two very basic things that he needs to do. He needs to turn out his base, as Francesca has highlighted, and he needs to uh, suppress Biden's as much as possible. And the two crises that we're experiencing right now with the pandemic and in race relations do provide the president with some potential tools to achieve both of those things. 
And what's clear from the data that I've seen, you obviously mentioned the New York Times poll and there was a CNBC poll this morning that was really interesting, is that Trump needs to win back white voters across the spectrum. And what you've seen is that his handling of these two crises has harmed him both with young white voters and surprisingly with old white voters. So his, you know, his aides surely are looking at these numbers and thinking he has very little to lose in adjusting his message to win back those who think that it's it's gotten too extreme. You know, Francesca and I are obviously keenly interested in whether or not that is the direction he'll go. And the question is whether the damage that's been done already is irreparable. But I'm of the opinion that very little is irreparable in politics anyway. I think pretty clearly, you know, the, the question moving forward is how much of this race has, has changed structurally and that there are just a, a wide group of voters who have decided that barring something truly dramatic, they're not going to vote for Donald Trump. And how much of this is just temporary? You know, and then you could even see that it skews the polls in a way it's called response bias. Republicans clearly seeing that things aren't going well are less likely to pick up the phone or, or answer a pollster's questions. And that shows an inflated lead for Joe Biden. I, I'm inclined to think that right now, and I know most of the Democrats and most of the Republicans I talk to think, it's a, certainly to some degree this race has changed structurally and that some of the, the changes are going to be more permanent. It's fascinating though, Michael, when you talk about how white voters or, you know, that, that that's the source of Donald Trump's problems. Because I feel like the last few weeks, guys, I've seen stories that say Trump was struggling with seniors and that, oh, you know what, though? But Trump was also struggling with women without a college degree, white women without a college degree. And, oh, maybe even Trump is struggling with evangelicals now and his support is softening there. And you start, you take a step back and you look at all these stories and you realize what they're saying is he's struggling right. with everyone. He's, and, he, and really, he's struggling with white people. And that's really right. where the drop has, has occurred. And even uh, Nate Cohn, who, who heads up the New York Times poll that I mentioned earlier, was talking about this on Twitter today, that it's really just a broad drop in, in white support. And while non-white support, which is already, of course, very, very low for, for Donald Trump, really has, has held steady, even over the course of the, the, the last three months. And to that point, he absolutely needs to get his people physically right to the polls. And I, I have said this repeatedly on the shows that I've been on this far, that the electoral impact of the pandemic is going to primarily be on turnout. And it makes the most consequential factor of any race, which is turnout, more unpredictable than ever. Because if he's losing young white voters, and if older white voters are typically reliable and are now hesitating to go to the polls on his behalf with a resurgent pandemic, then you've got something of a perfect storm for the reelect. So his campaign, at a bare minimum, is going to need the ground game in place to get those people safely to the polls. And, you know, again, in the theme of silver linings for Trump, you know, they do have the money for that ground game and they do have some time. Francesca, it seems like maybe the single most important thing that Trump can can do in the sort of short and, and medium term is to try to shift this race from being such a referendum on the president to more of a choice between him and Joe Biden and find a way to really drive a sustained negative narrative against Joe Biden. And it seems like even in the last few days, Axios, as Mike Allen called this, the, the smoke him out strategy for Joe Biden to try to get him talking off the cuff during press conferences, 
giving interviews where potentially there could be gaffes that drive a news cycle and start to renew focus on on Joe Biden. I mean, is that what you're seeing? Is 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 that going to be successful? So another takeaway from the rally, and by the way, Michael, <laughs> fantastic job giving facts to like to totally like you know back up me just talking about the rally. It, I know I think it's absolutely true. You know what you're saying about the numbers and and that being like why Donald Trump is like taking this specific strategy. He needs to win the white voters, and so he he thinks that the way to do that is the things that he said at the rally. And like you all, be really curious to see if, if that's an effective strategy. Is is that the kind of language that those voters want to hear that will actually make them go want to vote for Donald Trump? Or is he, you know, is he missing what they actually need to hear, which would have been an economic message potentially? And that just did not happen the other night at all. As far as, you know, your question, Alex, about Joe Biden goes, at the rally, he had an interesting litany of attacks he seemed to be trying out on Joe Biden that that really ran the gambit of, you know, you can't trust him when it comes to race relations. You can't trust him when it comes to foreign policy. He, you know, he I made a list. I find this tweet. I wish we could put it up of all the things that he said about Joe Biden at this rally. And you're talking about a sustained attack against him. It, it wasn't that he was, you know, he kept hammering him, but there wasn't one specific message that he was pushing against Joe Biden. And that's why it seemed like he was trying out different things to see if if any one of those lines would stick and then he could, you know, carry that line forward. So he still clearly hasn't figured out the best way to go after Joe Biden. And he still has some time to do that, to define him. But again, when he's not having rallies, it makes it more difficult for him to do that. So then we see events like yesterday where he had a joint presser with the president of Poland and he's bringing up sleepy Joe Biden. I mean, this is an official White House event. So he's clearly looking for opportunities to try and ding him and take those wherever they are, even if he can't be out rallying. Can we try to tally up all the different lines of criticism against Joe Biden? Because like Francesca said, it's a scattershot approach that includes that he's a longtime Washington insider, that he's the real racist, that he's, he's sleepy Joe Biden. And really, I, I almost feel like that in my own, what I've seen personally, seems to be the most sustained criticism that he basically he's old and, and not as, as sharp as he used to be. And they say that he's both really liberal, but also captive to the party's liberal elements or extreme far left elements. What, what am I missing? I mean, because there are a few other things. Here, think, here's right? what it was. Puppet for China on the wrong Puppet. side of history right. will always let you down Pawn of the fringe left would appoint radicals to the Supreme Court, willing Trojan horse for socialism, a plagiarist, a shameless hypocrite. We talked on the last podcast about how, you know, in 2016, you had this Teflon Don, you know, dynamic. And it really feels as if this year there's this sort of Teflon Joe dynamic in that none of these attacks have stuck quite yet. And you have to think, I mean, the the president who is by no means a conventional president is running a somewhat conventional reelect, trying to define his opponent and so forth. And it just, when you set the precedent that nothing matters, right, it's hard to attack Biden on a specific policy or another. And that seems to be where we are. Michael, let me ask you, because there seem like there are two events that could happen, particularly in the fall, that might change the landscape. One is 
a significantly rebounding economy, which, uh, you know, frankly, with the, the spike in cases across most of the southern United States, and it would seem like it would dim any hopes for that to some degree. But people I still think, you know, that the economy could rebound in third quarter. The other, and you've written extensively about this, is a vaccine. Why don't you, I mean, just kind of broadly update the reader where a vaccine stands? Because I know just frankly, it's what my parents talk about, right? And so that's what informs, you know, sort of the, the, what the average voter is thinking about right now. And of course, everyone's thinking about a vaccine. And some of the political considerations, maybe pro and, and con surrounding it. So you bring up two really important points. This is going to come down to the handling of the economy and handling of the pandemic. In some ways, their intention, because obviously the president is relying on his economic numbers. That CNBC poll that I mentioned earlier that was released today found that independents still are a undecided on Trump, which is an interesting figure, but that Trump is leading on economic policy. That is the one the one area where he's ahead by 42 to 26 percent over Biden, which is a significant among independents, which is a significant margin. And you do see that just broadly in Paul still that he holds an advantage on the economy over Biden. Right. Obviously, he needs to hold on to that. And he knows that. So what he's doing is he's trying to push for these reopenings and risks losing support among those who are prioritizing first and foremost the pandemic response because he is not looking as if he is acting entirely responsibly when obviously we see these resurgent spikes in in North Carolina and Florida and other uh, swing states really across the South and Southwest. On a vaccine, there is no scenario that I have come across in my reporting, none where we have a deliverable vaccine by the election or or even by the end of the year. The best case scenario, if, if you get the ace in the hole, if everything goes right, we will have a candidate that has passed through an expedited phase three trial by the end of the year that then can be you know, that, that's been produced at risk, which means that it's been manufactured before it was proven to be safe and effective. So there is the possibility that that happens by the end of the year. The political concern is that Trump is going to prematurely announce a discovery before the election, uh, given obviously the political impact that that might have. And you know, we interviewed uh, Dr. Fauci in the past couple of days who said that he would publicly oppose any administration effort to do just that. And there are a lot of scientists at NIH and who are working on Operation Warp Speed who have committed to push back against any effort like that. I want to quickly transition to our next topic, but just, just one last thought about Trump's political standing. And the thing I think that maybe is an opportunity missed for the Trump as Again, cases spike in the southern United States from California, Texas, Florida. It felt like to me in a different White House that they would have seen this opportunity as a chance to reboot the response to the pandemic, that Trump could change position and take strong, decisive action to try to curtail the virus and even lock down these communities somehow and really promote ubiquitous mask wearing. Because we have seen that that response is what the public wants. 
right? The governors who have taken swift action have been rewarded in the public with rising approval ratings. That is still the case four months into this, and polls overwhelmingly show that the public's concern is still focused on keeping everyone safe rather than reopening the economy. But for, I think, more reasons than we could even fill the show with, you know, we could have a three-hour show, that won't happen with this president and in this White House. But just just one thought I've had in, in, in the last few weeks. Francesca, let's switch our focus to the Democratic Party real quick, because as a consequence of these poll numbers that, that have slipped so precipitously for Donald Trump, we now see polls that show Biden either leading um, or in a dead heat in places like Ohio, Iowa, even Georgia, states that were seen as second-tier presidential battlegrounds even a few months ago, but now, quite clearly, uh, would seemingly be a real opportunity for Democrats to win. And, and I think my question for you is, and my colleague Dave Catney is and I wrote about this this week too, is it a wise decision, you think, for Democrats to start spending money here? Because, of course, the, the consequence Right. When you spend money in these states, you have less money to spend in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. And if Trump does bounce back, well, you just screwed up an awful lot like 2016. Right. And there's nothing that terrifies Democrats more than 2016. So what, what, what do you think? I mean, lay, lay out some of the analysis. Is, is it yeah. a wise idea for Democrats to start spending money in these places? Well, this goes back to the first part of the discussion that we were having. What voters does Joe Biden think that he needs to win or that he can peel away from Donald Trump. If he walks away from, you know, from Donald Trump's strategy saying, okay, he seems to be alienating minority voters. So then, you know, maybe you focus on states like Arizona and you say, okay, I think that I can beat him in Arizona. And, and, you know, if we just spent a little bit money there, or do you walk away from this and say, okay, uh, it's clear Donald Trump is making a really sustained push on white working class voters. I need to put money in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, you know, just in case. Like that's an effective that's an effective argument for him. There's a lot of variables. And I know I'm about to touch on your favorite topic right now. The beef stakes is still a major ah, variable here. Yeah, bring, right. Who does he yeah. pick to be his running mate? I think will tell us a lot about what Joe Biden's strategy is for this election and what he thinks that he needs to do and where he plans to spend money. And by money, I also mean money on travel, right? Time, travel. It will tell us a lot about where he plans to take this. In reporting the, the story with Dave, a couple of things stood out. I mean, one, first and foremost, the Biden campaign and allies like Priorities USA, they're not ready to expand into the second tier presidential battlegrounds. They made that quite clear. The Biden campaign just last week, or I guess like two weeks ago, unveiled its initial ad buy, and it was in the core six battlegrounds that we've talked a lot about on the show. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, and North Carolina. You know, those are still the states because, and, and I had a Democrat to say this very bluntly to me, that everyone is haunted by 2016. You know, the party didn't focus on Wisconsin very infamously in the way that it should have. And priorities, which was then backing Hillary Clinton, actually started running ads against Republican House candidates in Iowa a mm. couple of weeks before the election, which was a, a, quite clearly a major faux pas in retrospect. And so there is this hesitancy, but there is some question of whether or not by the end of the summer, if the polls haven't changed, maybe they can start spending there. And Michael, it would seem like one of the reasons you would do this, it's not just that you have to win Ohio and Iowa. What you're trying to do is if you spend there, that forces the Trump campaign to spend there. And then they have less money for the states that they have to win too. Again, these, these core six 
battleground states. That that would seem to be the limit. And oh, by the way, in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this, we're going to just add one more dollop of bad news for Donald Trump. This enormous financial edge that he still holds over Joe Biden might be shrinking. Uh, Joe Biden and his super PAC priorities, they outraised Trump in May. And I think the expectation is that he's going to outraise him again in June and maybe by an even larger margin. I mean, how much of a concern should a place like Ohio be for the Trump campaign? First of all, not all of these states are the same in terms of how much money it would cost to play, right? Obviously, Texas is the size of a country, right? So it's that is the ultimate white whale uh, in terms of the number of television markets and so forth. You know, Georgia might be more manageable and might be more uh, feasible for, for the Trump campaign. But Francesca and I have both been reporting this out for actually for months. We've been asking about these white whale states, let's call them, uh, for Democrats, right? And it's not as if the, the Trump campaign and the RNC is would be caught flat-footed. They have been preparing to defend themselves in these states. And they're not dismissive of, you know, the democratic conversation about playing in those states. Your your piece captured the mood, I think, really well. The expectation, as you write, that in August, the Democrats will reassess. I think that that makes sense to your question about, like, what what's a safe strategy? Because in theory, in August, we'll have a better sense of you know, of the playing field. But yeah, I think the most important point is the the Republicans, you know, think of it as a dangerous strategy on the on the part of Democrats. And, you know, because they're testing a proposition that's never been proven. It has never been proven that Democrats in how many years, Alex, you would know this. When was the last time Democrats won Georgia? It was a different party, right? It was Jimmy Carter, um, I think. Yeah. He yeah. was the one who yeah. brought up Georgia? Yes. Right? <laughs> Obviously, the map has changed in, in a matter of weeks when we were talking about these six core states where the president is obviously won election in the first place and he's on defense in all six of those four battlegrounds, right? That remains the case and and Biden could win by playing it safe, right? So it makes abundant sense to me that they would default to that for the time being. Alex, because he brought up Georgia, and you know I love to talk about Georgia. <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> so, so, so Michael, he keeps getting on because I always just want to talk about Georgia. And so, thank you for bringing up Georgia. So, well, Georgia, can, can I can I make one quick one quick correction ahead, yeah, to something yeah. I just said? It was actually Bill Clinton in 1992. It was the last oh, Democrat right? to, to win. Yeah, he 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 narrowly won the state. So, I want to correct the record before we move on. Francesca, apologize for interrupting. No, you. I knew no. you were going to jump on this. You knew I was actually I was surprised go for it. I was you didn't so immediately excited. jump on it. <laughs> So, okay, Georgia. Yes, Michael, you're you're 100% right on this. They haven't they haven't been able to win it and they've been creeping up on it every single year Democrats have and they truly believe that this is going to be the year where that they can flip this state based on how Stacey Abrams did in the 2018 gubernatorial race when she was able to turn out African-American voters in a way that they hadn't been turned out before, which again, Michael goes back to, I think the point you've been making this entire podcast is if Joe Biden can turn out more African-American voters than Hillary Clinton turned out, then he will be sitting pretty in, in a lot of these, these states that we're talking about, right, that had been Republican that Correct. Donald Trump had won, like take North Carolina, that's another good example of a state that if Donald Trump lost the state of North Carolina, he would be in a bad, you know, in a bad position and would absolutely have to win 
Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and that corridor. But another state we haven't brought up that I really want to hit on is Minnesota. I just think that Minnesota has gotten overlooked this entire election. And now it probably won't be, given the protests that we've seen there. But Minnesota is a state where Donald Trump barely lost last time, and his campaign is committed to putting in more resources. I mean, they didn't really put any resources into it last time at all. This time, they think that they can win it. So then add that with this push he's made on law and order and the way that he has you know, positioned himself against Joe Biden, which is he, he is pushing himself as the candidate of law and order compared to Joe Biden, who he's claiming is, is not. And, you know, his campaign's funding rioters and protesters and all kinds of stuff like that. Like, that's the other argument that Donald Trump is trying to set up in this election, which is a scare tactic, so to speak, of, you know, I'll make sure these things don't happen to you. Joe Biden will let all of these terrible things happen to you. One last thought. I am picking up an increasing sentiment. Obviously, it's early, but talking with a lot of Democrats, the tantalizing possibility of not just beating Donald Trump, but blowing him out. And obviously that would have a lot of down ballot effects, both for the Senate and even all the way down to the state legislative level. But a, a sense that they dislike, they, I mean, frankly, they hate the guy so much and they want to send a, an enormous message, not just to the country, but to the world that the country has rejected the president soundly, that it wasn't close. And also keeping in mind that if it is a landslide defeat, it's going to be harder for Donald Trump to say that he was cheated out of victory, which I think every Democrat expects him to claim at some point in this process. That that is that is a sentiment that uh, the, the seeds have been planted for that, and, and I you know and that is obviously becomes risky for Democrats for some obvious reasons. But I have picked that up in at several conversations in the last few weeks. Just something to keep in mind. Okay, before we leave, we're going to turn to what is my favorite segment every week, where Michael and Francesca are going to tell me something new, fresh, or original out of their reporting notebook. Michael, since this is the first time that we have been on the show together, you have the honor of going first. You're too kind. Um, <laughs> so uh, we've all seen this you know, progression of you know the movement to take down statues, right? That that glorify notoriously racist figures or controversial figures. And the primary target here in Washington is a statue at the center of Lafayette Square outside the White House of a mounted Andrew Jackson, who, as it happens to be just the Sparknotes version of Andrew Jackson's presidency, first populist president, he was you know, pro-slave, led the Trail of Tears, etc. And he's Donald Trump's favorite president, right? And so this one's a little personal. And, you know, he's called Jackson his hero. One of his first trips as president in 2017 was to Jackson's plantation, right? He has a portrait of Jackson hanging in the Oval. And so what news came out this morning? The D.C. Guard will be back in the district protecting monuments. And so I'll be curious to see the, you know, back and forth over the Jackson statue. I'm watching that closely because I, I think it's a fascinating microcosm of the culture war of the Trump presidency. Francesca, what do you got? All right. Well, last week we discussed John Bolton's book. It's out now. I've got a copy of it. I'm thoroughly enjoying reading this book. And I suspect Michael and I We'll have more for you on Jordan Bolton next week. Just a little teaser, some fun stuff we might have coming up. Oh, I like that. Okay. But today's passage in our, I guess, our reading hour is about this situation with Nikki Haley that took place and Russian sanctions. 
So I, I'm very interested in this section because I was involved in this particular situation. So by the way, there were other people in the room when it happened besides John Bolton. And reporters were in the room when this one happened. So Nikki Haley gets on the Sunday shows and says that U.S. was about to push sanctions on Russia. I had been reporting on this at the time because I had gotten a copy of talking points that the White House had sent out to Republicans to go on the Sunday shows that were advertising sanctions that were going to be on Russia. So the White House then claims that Nikki Haley was mistaken. There weren't going to be sanctions on Russia. Sarah Sanders explicitly told me at the time that Donald Trump was not putting sanctions on Russia, although it was under consideration. John Bolton writes in the book about how Trump had approved the sanctions on Russia when this was all going down. And what had actually happened was he changed his mind and decided to pull back on them. They say that they told Nikki Haley's people about this, but that Nikki Haley messed up and still went out on the Sunday shows and announced that these sanctions were going to be taking place. So flash forward, we're down at Mar-a-Lago. Larry Kudlow does a presser and which he's asked by a reporter about this particular situation. Larry Kudlow then fires a shot at Haley, says she was confused. Nikki Haley then you know, goes on Fox and says she's never confused about anything. And hence in the Bolton book, he thereby confirms the reporting. And I think that that I think is a big takeaway of this book, guys, is that a lot of the incidents that had been being reported on definitely happened. These are things that definitely happened and the reporting was correct. The room where it happened with Michael Wilner, Francesca Chambers. <laughs> we should have titled the book. Mine, I'll be quick. Just want to highlight a controversy within the Democratic Party about whether or not to restart a door-to-door -door canvassing operation uh, for campaigns in different groups. I wrote about that in a story published today. The dilemma between Democrats who see those face-to-face -face conversations that you have when you do this kind of campaigning as an essential irreplaceable part of, of reaching out to, to Democratic voters, to reaching out to persuadable voters and defeating Donald Trump versus the Democrats who see this as even if it is a tiny increase in risk to the public health, because of course the pandemic is ongoing. And like we said, even it's spiking in, in many states that it's not worth it, that you can you actually can replace it with digital organizing, with text messages and online organizing. And there's a real disagreement in the party. And you have already seen some Democratic and liberal groups have already stepped out on this, are already starting to relaunch their, their field programs or plan to do so in the coming weeks. Whereas other Democrats, including Joe Biden's campaign, they want to do it, but they're not yet sure that they should be. And then still more Democrats who are just shaking their heads saying, forget it, it's not going to happen this year. So within the Democratic political operative world, this is a real conversation. There's real disagreement about it. And just something to keep, keep in mind as we move forward. I should say, just in case you're wondering, yes, the Democratic groups that are doing this already, they are taking extra safety precautions, mandatory mask wearing, standing six feet apart. They have a bucket of hand sanitizer with them wherever they go, et cetera, et cetera. But just, just something to keep in mind as we move forward. Okay, that's it for this week's show. Michael, Francesca, thank you guys so much for coming on. Great job as always. Delighted to be with the White House team from McClatchy. Our pleasure. Thanks, Alex. I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.